I'm in my, by the way, this is where I'm in my, my daughter's room. All good. Occupied now. All right, everybody, and welcome back to this week's Stoke. I hope you've been enjoying the episode so far, and I know that this one won't disappoint, and it's really going to put me on the spot. It's not every day that the interviewer gets to interview the perfect sports commentator. So my questioning skills are going to get put to the test, and I'm super excited to introduce you all to NBC sports commentator Steve Perino, who's here with us today. So welcome, Steve. Thank you. Now I feel like I've been put on the spot here. Okay, I'm ready. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And so I really want to take the time to talk to you a little bit about your ski career, but really move into the fact that ski racing is a sport that our community knows and loves, but it isn't a sport that really is as popular amongst people who are outside of it. And so I think you have a really interesting perspective that we can get into as we get through our conversation about how could we continue to spread this sport with more people. And you're already doing a really good job of that already. So I think it'll just be a fun thing to share with the sync community and just talk about ski racing, which is something that I think we could both do all day long. So I think, Steve, the best way to get started is just start with your story. How did you get into ski racing? I know that it was kind of a little bit of a different path. You ended up on the East Coast. And what was your career really like? Uh, well, so my my dad ski raced. So he's European. He grew up in Switzerland and Italy. And it was something he did. And I was the youngest of four. And I think in many ways, my story is a lot like other ski families, whereas if the older siblings do it, you know, you got to get in the car. And I lived in the Midwest. I mean, even though I was learned how to ski at Haystack in Vermont, um, at the age of six, we moved to the Midwest. And it's one of those things like if the whole family is going to go ski, which in the Midwest always is a drive, um, everyone goes. And so I was the youngest of four. I had three, still have three older sisters. And so when we would load up every day and they became ski racers and they would go to Wilmot Mountain, which is on the border of Wisconsin and Illinois. And I just, I'd hop in the car and I, I went along too. And so my started as a family thing, which I think is the case for a lot of people, particularly when there's a drive involved, because, you know, back in my day, we not everyone had a car. We one car and we all went that's what we did and then so from there um i just i got into it and i i really loved it and i I would go after school mom would leave the crock pot out we'd eat dinner at four o'clock get in the car go night ski drive an hour to ski in 256 feet of vertical drop at wilmot mountain and you got your laps in and i didn't know any better and i thought that was the greatest thing in the world and i i got I got way into it and I was one of the best in the Midwest and my dad got transferred back to work on the East coast. And, um, and that's how the whole Brooks story evolved for me. Okay. So not only are you an epic Midwest skier, and so it's kind of hard to do anything but slalom there, but then you end up going to Burke, spend some time at Burke, and then you kind of get into the speed track. How the heck did those chain of events happen? Well, I mean, you know, if you, if you, let me look at Lindsay Vaughn. She was at, her dad, by the way, when I was six, was my coach. Um, oh, no way. And, and uh, gravitate towards what, I mean, for me, I gravitated towards what I was better at. And I didn't know I would be better at it until there was some downhill races at, at Hillington and Sugarloaf that suddenly I, I, I did well at. So 
we go in a direction where we have success. And, you know, there, there are lots of downhillers that come from small places. We think of them as, as being sort of Western animals. But again, the prime example is, is Lindsey Vaughn, um, who came from Minnesota. And it wasn't until, I mean, she was in Vail at age 13. So there was this evolution. I think in a, in a lot of ways, uh, one of the best things a skier can do is, is start in a small gear where you get your laps and you and you're not distracted either you know if you i live in sun valley now and it's so great to just go skiing that sometimes it's not that fun to get your laps in and to do all those reps that make you a better ski racer but at a time where i didn't know better you know my laps you know 20 25 runs a day at yeah. walmart like i i couldn't have been happier I had no idea what powder skiing was i you know i wasn't cliff jumping you know, there wasn't any of that. And so at that younger age, I kind of got my fundamentals. I did my gym work uh, when I didn't know that there was sort of, you know, kind of greater horizons for ski racing. And so then when I got to Burke, I, you know, I still, I was so slalom and GS, Super G basically didn't exist. Yep. Um, that didn't mean that we didn't go top to bottom on Willoughby as fast as we could go and, and launch off of what was the slalom start. Um, and then, you know, you'd have one or two downhills a year and we would have our downhill training and for whatever reason. That was really small. I was good at it. And then I made the world junior championships, which were all the way over in Sugarloaf. <laughs> and, uh, um, track there. and so that was, that was the beginning of it. And I yep. was better at that relative to the rest of the country than I was at Solomon GS. And so that was the direction I headed. Simple as that. And I happened to love it. There you go. That's the most important part. But I like this, the idea that you really just build up that time on snow when you're young, and then you kind of start to move in the direction that fits how you are as a skier and those techniques that you build up. But really just the enjoyment of the sport has been a theme that I've liked to talk about a ton, because in the end, it's all about how much we love this sport. And I think that that's a really good transition to a personal question, just because my inner Berkey has to know, what was one of your favorite memories at Burke? Yes, it's, uh, um, so many memories. So I have a favorite memory. I can tell you about interviewing at Burke. Okay. You talk about the passion of the sport. It just broken my ankle. And my first time back on snow was going to Burke when it had snowed. It snowed almost two feet, which happens never, right? Rarely. <laughs> what does happen a lot is it rains on top of that. Yes. It was like water bar ice. I'd just broken my ankle six weeks earlier and they, I had to go up on the hill and sort of do my interview. Uh, and I remember thinking, like, this is horrific. The <laughs> mountain was like so big. I couldn't believe they had mountains this big and that it seemed so cool to me. And it was so, the, the skiing in a sense, it was intimidating, but it was exciting. Yep. And I, I'll be honest with you. I, I had no, if, my father hadn't moved family back east. I would not have thought of Burke. Right. I didn't really want to go to a ski academy. I didn't even know what a ski academy was. It was just good enough that I knew I wanted to continue my skiing. So I kind of, and I think this, this happens to people more often than we set a plan and everything goes to a key. Yeah. I didn't want to go, frankly, Burke. Then I got there. I got a, I got a sniff of it. 
And I'm like, this could be really cool. Um, you know, from an outsider perspective, and let's be honest, you go up there and it's like water bar ice. There's a bunch of farmhouses. You're like, wow, this is a really small room. You know, there's air that's coming through the windows and there's ice on the inside of the windows. You know, it's a pretty rustic experience, which at the time I was like, I guess. Now, you know, now looking back, I would do that again and again and again. It was yeah. like the greatest, one of the greatest experiences of my life. So I look at it from a standpoint of, you know, that first experience of Burke being completely intimidated, but also in a bit of awe, taking a chance. And then four years later, when I left, I actually did a PG year. I went as a sophomore. Having so happy that I had made that decision ultimately yeah. to do something that was super uncomfortable, not something I really wanted to do. And then feeling so rewarded and that, you know, some of my best friends today remain my classmates from Burke. I would say most of my really close friends uh, are classmates at Burke. That's incredible. And yeah, it is. I'll tell you the amount of times that I've slept in my room and there's frost on the inside of my wall and nothing changed. <laughs> Right, right, yeah. yeah. But then I think it makes more sense now to kind of transition and start talking about what you're doing now with commentating for NBC. How did you really get into commentating for ski racing and how did that path come from finishing your career? Yeah, I mean, it's it's not unlike the story I just told you where there's a little bit of, you know, this wasn't mapped out. This right. wasn't something I knew I was going to do. Um I used to, you know, I used to kind of play Bob Yaddy, who was the, you know, the Bob Yaddy basically helped create the sport that we, as we know it now, create the World Cup, pro skiing, uh, announcing on television as far back as the 76 Olympics, which was his famous call, you know, when Franz Klammer won. I say, you know, you might not have watched that live, but um <laughs> Uh, and so I would kind of, I would imitate Bob Yaddy. People would say, oh, you should do that. I mean, that was about as close to sort of a trajectory as I had. But when I finished my career, um, which was at age 26, was my last year on the national team, uh, I was already dabbling in school. The U.S. ski team, as it does today, helped pay for a relationship with the University of Utah. And so I was going to school there. I finished up and I took journalism classes because what I liked about journalism was the ability to talk to all manner of people about all manner of things. I had this very, I didn't know what I wanted to do, but I knew I liked hearing people's stories and telling stories. It was that big and simple. Then I was coaching at Snowbird I decided, you know, like I love coaching. This is going to be too easy in a, in a sense that I'm just going to go into coaching. I'm not going to try anything else in my life. So I started writing ski racing magazine at the time and they offered me a job. <laughs> I remember thinking like, ah, I don't know what I'm really enjoying <laughs> this coaching thing. So I just, again, I just struck out and I did an internship that was 1997. So I just, I was living in Park City at the time. And I went, I packed up my drift boat. I love fly fishing. Everything I owned went in the drift boat, dragged it back east. And I lived in the basement of Gary Black Jr., who owned Ski Racing Magazine at the time. Wow. And I had, you know, the, no experience at all. 
and I was writing 5,000 words a week, which meant I, I slept zero. I'm the slowest writer in the world. <laughs> I just, I did that work for, and I, I did the work. And you're, you're, you're on stage in a sense. So I, I knew a lot about ski racing. I knew nothing about writing. And so I, I suffered, I suffered for a few years where I just, I didn't, I didn't do anything but write. Uh, and that was so good for me. And at the same time, a job opportunity opened up at ESPN. I, I tell this story a lot. Todd Brooker, who's a close friend and a colleague and kind of a hero of mine, one of the great crazy Canucks, he was the voice of ESPN along with Bob Biatti, but he had yeah. to go to Burger College, which if you open up a Wendy's or McDonald's or a franchise like that, they make you go to Burger College. I don't know if you knew that. I didn't know that. No. <laughs> And, uh, and so for three months, he was in Burger College, so they needed someone to fill his shoes. So they had an audition. And there, suddenly, the guy that I was imitating my whole life, I'm doing like an audition with Bob Biatti. And I am having this out-of-body experience. And I'm like, whatever, I'll try. And people had put my hat in the ring, coaches from the U.S. ski team. And they gave me the job. So I went. Uh, there was a World Cup in Park City at the time. And I just, I did it. Not well. Oh. Um, and, you know, there's no coaching for it. There's no, you, you would think it's like, you know, it's national TV, you know, there'd be this big buildup and you'd have all these rehearsals and they're like, nah. You're <laughs> out just, there. Go for it. <laughs> go. Let's talk until you make sense. Um, that, and that was the beginning of it. And I just did, I still, I was still working for ski racing and there wasn't much television opportunity at the time where there wasn't that much on, on TV. It, yeah. it went from this sort of model of wide world of sports. There'd be like a of it every weekend, yep. just a smattering of it. And then it, it, there were, it was like domestic races, it's Buell, Olympics, world championships, and otherwise you wouldn't see it. Um, and that was kind of my involvement. So for a few years, that's all I did was a, a handful of races. Uh, and it's hard to learn that way. You don't get any reps. So I continued to be really bad and then <laughs> and suffer. Um, then I, I got a job doing play-by-play in 2004, which is the, the lead role, the Bobbiati role, which again, like, so prepared for that. Um, and some great stories about how poorly that went. I'll spare you those right now. Um, but then once you got the reps, then, then, then I, I, then I, I'm not going to say I, I, I blossomed, but I am what I am. And yeah. I, 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 it no longer horrifies me to be on television. It might horrify other people, but it doesn't horrify me. That's amazing. And it honestly, it seems like you've taken these leaps of faith in a bunch of different places in your life, whether or not that was going to Burke, that was taking the job at Ski Racing Media, now then going into ESPN and sports commentating. And each time you're kind of like, I'm going to put my head down, I'm going to grind, I'm going to make it work and figure it out. And I think that that's really the athlete and the ski racing attitude, that mindset that, okay, may not be the easiest, but we're going to figure it out and I'm going to go fast and that's how it's going to be. Like, there's no other option. It's, I'm going to do it. Yeah, and at the same time, I, I would I would offer this one caveat. I wasn't the kind of person that was going to put myself out there and say, I know I can do this. You know, like, trust me, this is, I got this, you know, okay. whatever. You know, make me, it was more that it, these things landed in my lap. I kind of, you know, I'm, I'm a little bit like sort of Forrest Gumpish when it comes yeah. to my career. And 
you know, my instinct was like, I don't know if I can do this. I know I felt that way at the start of a downhill. Yeah. I've been there before. You know, like, and then you, and, but then you, oh, but someone else had put faith in me. Yep. And I thought, well, if they believe in me, I, I should be able to, do it. but it, it wasn't always me out front. I saw like that was, I took these chances and I followed these paths and I suffered through, yeah. you know, not being good. Uh, and you know, that's what I just sent my daughter off to school. I'm in her room right now. And it's, you know, it's, it's a big step for her. She's off to college. It's like, find out what it is you like and follow that path, you know, don't fall into that same, you know, I think a lot of kids now it's like, I gotta be good at absolutely everything because I gotta get to school and I gotta get to this next step. It's like, try to follow what you love. Yeah, that's I've been really successful at following. I definitely didn't dig in hard on things I didn't want to do. I've been yeah. pretty selfish that way. <laughs> that's all right. That's all right. Um, it's that passion, and that's kind of the idea of where we're gonna head next in the conversation. Is ski racers love ski racing, but outside of ski racing, people don't really know the sport. And so we've seen actually with F1, a lot of that popularity is starting to happen. And I don't know if it's directly related to Netflix's documentary or just the adrenaline that people are starting to see of the sport and something that's a little bit more foreign. But do you think there's a way that we can spread ski racing in a similar way so people who aren't familiar are excited to watch things like the Hanukkah and watch more than just the Olympics and get into the World Cup circuit and become more loyal followers of this incredible sport? It's a tough one because, you know, I've been in it 20 years. Right. Um, and I, I'll never forget what Bob Biatti told me. And I was so offended by it at the time. Uh, but it makes sense now that I've been in television for a long time. He said, the worst thing you can do for a ski broadcast, show too many skiers. Right. It sounds right. And, thought. <laughs> yeah. Right. It, and, and when you, you know, go to that F1 uh, and I haven't seen the series, but I've heard so many great things about it. Right when it comes to attracting non-skiers or I think when it comes to attracting people to a sport that they don't otherwise play themselves or do anything even similar to, you want to know attracted to the people, right? not the sport. Um, that's, you know, that, that's in very you know, black and white about it. There's more nuance to that. It's, it's true to a large degree. I mean, who has done the best job of bringing attention to our sport? That's, you know, and it's not me. It's Lindsey Vaughn. Yep. Michaela Schifrin. Yep. Cody Miller. It's Ted Ligeti. And, you know, and you really, you look at those, you know, those people have, people know who they are outside of alpine skiing. And as their story becomes interesting, they want to know what they, you know, what's the game they play. Then they'll get involved. If I'm being again, there are too many ski races. There's too many ski races. Interesting. Um, when you think about, you know, I don't really know the F1 schedule, but I assure you there are not 40 races. No, right? I don't think so. 40 men's races, 40 women's races. That's too many. Uh, and so when it, and and we have, you know, six disciplines now, right? It's like we've got. It used to be downhill and slalom, right? That was what, and then it was the combined. Right. And that downhill GS slalom, and it was super G. And then downhill GS, super G combined. And now we, you know, now it's super combined. 
and people, you know, like as a as a fed, as an FIS federation, we spend a lot of mind share. People in the ski community will argue over: we want to watch parallel, yeah, we want to watch combined. And this doesn't matter to anyone outside of you and me. So we we can have our opinions about you know the Europeans would say that parallel racing is just made for TV. It's you know it's a it's bastardizing our sport, uh, and you know this combined is more essential. It's more grassroots, and you know who we are as a people. We need to stop thinking that way if we want to expand our sport as to what appeals to us. If we offend other skiers in an effort to make our sport more appealing, so be it. Right. I think we need to be more unified in how we sell our sport because it is tricky. If you go to, when I talk to my colleagues in Switzerland, every race they add to the calendar, it's like an 80% audience share in Switzerland, right? They don't, they don't have to futz with what's the best time to put it on. Right. Should we put on combined? Should we put on parallel? It doesn't matter. You're going to watch. Everyone's watching. So yep. as a, as you know, the FIS needs to look at this like, well, where are we trying to sell this thing? Are we trying to, you know, they're already, the, are we trying to sell this to the already indoctrinated? Because people that will complain about parallel, well, they, they don't turn it off. They still watch it, right? And so we need to start listening to the people that aren't paying attention at all. And see um, how to bring them in. Yeah. And so I do, I just think, you know, there's a lot of different ideas out there. And I think we should weigh them all with interest because what we're doing now by continually adding to the calendar is not the answer in, in order to honor a larger deal. Um, you know, I, I get I get a little bit up in arms over, you know, we want to expand our sport to include more like other federations. We want to include the, the Chinese or the Middle East. Or, or African countries. Well, if the, if the season goes from October to March and you got to train before that, you know, like what Israeli is going to, you know, like who's going to be able to keep up apart from the people that live with snow or you raise so much money that you can basically export these people live yeah. by snow. Yeah. Then we line up on a glacier and you've seen the photos where the courses are 10 feet apart and you know we go into the ski factory 100 so, you can see i get a little like a little fired up about this you know like we, <laughs> how you know how we're going to grow this thing well i don't think that's i don't think what we're doing is is the way to do it and i look at you know what's been a great success we'll talk i'll try to be more positive like let's look at killington yeah right? that is the most attended women's ski race in the world yeah that's an awesome add to the calendar it's close to so you know, it's many within a few places. hours of 90 million people. Yeah. You know, if you talk about the heartbeat of ski racing in the U.S., I mean, it's New England. Right? It's not to say that there are other, you know, Sun Valley. I don't think there's a community, a country that is more ski racing centric than Sun Valley. But we got like 20,000 people. That's what shows up at Killington. Um, that's an amazing ad. So these things where we add close to urban environments, you know, night racing is amazing. If you want to talk about garnering a television audience, because people that 
first of all, people that watch ski racing, they happen to ski. So if it's on during the day, you're competing with what you would probably prefer to do. Watch yeah, a race. Ski. <laughs> um, so, you know, think the night races, um, and I, I think places that are, you know, urban, heavy Finland. I, right. I love Levy Finland. It's, it's cool. It's, you know, it's got Santa Claus, it's got reindeers. It's, it's really, it's really far away. It's not easy to get to. That's not easy to get to. Um, and, and like, you know, and it just disrupts the calendar, the way it's done. Um, I, I, those are all things I think we need to think yeah. about globally with our sport. So, you know, there's been great ads, Zagreb to me, you know, the, all the night slums are great ads, but just constantly adding races to the calendar to me, not the answer. I don't know if I've answered the question, but I know what I don't like. Yeah, no, I think that's really interesting. And it's awesome. Like the great point about Killington, it is incredible to see how many people do truly show up when they have the opportunity to get there. And so I, I hope that they continue to hold Killington for years to come. And this race really continues to build. And it's interesting about the number of races. That's something I hadn't heard before. And it makes a lot of sense. And so it's interesting to think about something that like isn't as rare. If you're having a race all the time, it's not as exciting and you're not forcing yourself to tune in for that limited number of races. So I think it's a good point. So, oh, what were you gonna say something? Yeah, well, I was gonna add, you know, like back to, we want, you know, how disappointed are we when Michaela doesn't race, right? You, you know, like as if, it, again, when you're really ensconced in, in ski racing, you, you know, you appreciate all the racers. Right. And I do. I know I do. I want to see them. But the general audience is like, if Michaela's not racing, she won't even, and she may, she won't, she'll know she's not going to race a month from now. She won't tell anyone up until just before she doesn't go because it's not good for the people that are hosting the race. Right. Because everyone wants, everyone around the world wants to see the best skiers race. If you load up a calendar, to where she gets no time to train or rest, she's not going to go to every race. And we've seen that. And that's the same with even well, Federica Brignone, like yeah. ever skip a race. But you look at the great ski racers, in order to, for them to be ready to be multi-event skiers and have the time to prepare, there's enough of them out there where an Alexi Pantero would maybe race in everything, but he doesn't have enough time prepare for all those races if the calendar is 40 races so if you want to see the best skiers every weekend you can't you, you can't steal all of their free time that's what the calendar does yep and it'd be interesting too to look into how often like a tennis player like Naomi Osaka or like Serena Williams was playing during their entire season because you really just get that limited down to like four major tournaments and that's what everybody tunes in for. But yes, they may play some other stuff here and there, but that isn't as big as just those four. And if you're a real tennis fan, you're watching all four, no matter what. Um, and so it is, it's 40 versus four is a big deal. <laughs> yeah, it is. So I think then it really brings up the question of the Olympics. I think that's kind of the perfect way to end our conversation. The Olympics have always been this big thing for ski racing. You put it right in the spotlight, see what happens. And, you know, there are gold medals on the line. So everybody wants to watch. You just returned from Tokyo. Is your plan to go and 
talk in sportscast the Winter Olympics. Kind of what are you thinking moving into that as we're going towards Beijing? No one knows what's going to happen with Beijing. I mean, it, Beijing doesn't know what's going to happen with Beijing. In terms of, yes, well, I, I'm confident it will happen. Yeah. Whether we go there <laughs> might be the, is that's another question, right? It, it, currently, there's a 14 day quarantine ahead of time. And that's, again, when you look at a 40 race schedule for just, I'm talking about alpine skiing, forget all the other disciplines and all the other sports. Um, there's no way to go you know, without disrupting massively your World Cup season 14 days early yeah. and quarantine. And, you know, is it a hard quarantine, meaning you don't leave your hotel or is it soft quarantine, meaning you stay in a bubble and you can actually go up on the hill? Um, that's, the, that's on the athlete side of it. It'll be, by the way, as far as I know, the first Olympics, modern Olympics, where they're going, no one's ever been there. Right. Right. No one, no one, and that's so important, right? You look at past Olympics and ski companies go particularly for speed and they're testing skis and they know this and they know that. They know nothing. Nobody knows anything. Yeah, it's completely fresh slate. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, you know, there's going to be a lot of that from the broadcast side as well. How will we handle it? Are we going to go on site? Right. Um, you know, I typically go as a reporter. I think we don't know right now, but it's it's very likely that we might have Lindsey Vaughn and Ed Ligeti in the nice. booth, uh with Dan Hicks. And then I would go as reporter, but, you know, like, would I go alone? And they're back in Stanford, Connecticut. So if you're asking how are we going to do it, we don't really know. Um, but it's very likely it'll be the lightest presence at any Olympics just because of what's happening uh, with COVID and, and yep. China in particular. Yep. Yeah, a lot of unknowns. And it'll be definitely interesting to follow as stuff gets closer and things get into place and we really get into the season. Um, I think after last season, everybody's hoping that this will be like maybe a little bit more normal. And who knows if that's going to be the reality. Um, but Steve, I have had an incredible time asking you about our sport and talking about ski racing and just talking about spreading the sport and the awareness and the love that we all have. And so thank you so much for coming on today and Sync Community, I hope you enjoyed and learned a little bit about what it takes to be able to spread the sport to more people, talk about the schedule, talk about what's coming and the Olympics and we'll all be following. And so Steve, thank you again so much for your time. That was my pleasure. Thank you.